There are few things that make people successful. Taking a step forward to change their lives is one successful trait, but it takes some time to get there. How do you move forward to greet the success that awaits you? Welcome to Next Steps Forward with host Chris Meek. Each week, Chris brings on another guest who has successfully taken the next steps forward. Now, here is Chris Meek. Welcome to this week's edition of Next Steps Forward. I'm your host, Chris Meek. As always, it's great to have you with us again. Our guest for the first half of today's podcast is Dr. Mary C. Daly, President and Chief Executive Officer of the Federal Reserve Bank of San Francisco. Dr. Daly took office on October 1st, 2018, and in 2021 also began serving as a voting member of the Federal Open Market Committee. Prior to her appointment as President of the San Francisco Federal Reserve Bank, Dr. Daly served as the bank's Executive Vice President and Director of Research. Her research focused on labor market dynamics and the aggregate and distributional impacts of monetary and fiscal policy. Now, I was an economics undergrad. That's a mouthful for me to say, so thanks for bearing with me. And she's published work on economic inequality, wage and unemployment dynamics, increasing output through workforce development, and disability and retirement policy. Dr. Daly has served on several high-profile advisory boards, including those of the Congressional Budget Office, the Social Security Administration, and the Library of Congress. And perhaps most importantly, she earned her PhD at my beloved alma mater, Syracuse University. Dr. Mary Daly, welcome to Next Steps Forward. Thank you so much for having me. Look forward to it, Chris. No, I appreciate your time. I know how busy your schedule is. And before we start a conversation, I need to state that this part of today's show is being pre-recorded on January 5th, 2022. Now that I have our disclaimer out of the way, let's get to it. Mary, many people start out on a different career path than where they ultimately end up. Did you always see yourself as an economist or did life take you down one of those different paths? (laughs) <laughs> well, to be honest, Chris, as a young person, I didn't even know that there were such things as economists. Uh, so in my sphere of reference were the things that I was familiar with, mailman, uh, which was a mailman at the time, not even a mail carrier. And you could also work in retail and you could be a vet. And I actually started a little animal hospital in my backyard because I thought that would be my uh, life profession. But quickly, I learned that I like caring for them on my free time, not as a regular career, and found my way to being an economist. And obviously, it takes a lot of work to become a PhD. Why has education mattered so much to you that you earned first your bachelor's degree, then a master's, then a PhD, and you've even done postdoctoral work? Sure. And, you know, I'd like to, if I can, take this opportunity to sort of do a little mist buff myth busting. I love to bust myths. So uh, it is a lot of work to go ahead and get your PhD, but it's a lot of work to do any career, whether you're getting it through these educational thresholds that I did, or whether you're going and getting experience and learning on the job and then translating that into a career. So all of us work hard at our professions. And my profession, my chosen one, has these learning obstacles you have to go through uh, to get your PhD. And that was really valuable to me because I knew I wanted to coming out of Syracuse as a PhD, I knew I wanted to do public service. Actually going to Syracuse, it was a choice of I wanted to work in public policy. And so I was devoted to learning the tools and techniques that I needed to have to create the biggest opportunity to have voice for all the people I cared about when I went and pursued this in the first place. So that's really why I got my PhD so that I could maximize my skill set so that I could have the biggest impact given the things that I was interested in. And I would be doing a disservice to our alma mater if I didn't give a shameless plug right here. 
to our friend D- Dean David Van Slyke in the Maxwell School, which is the number one public Absolutely. policy school in the country. So I have to get Absolutely. that out there. I'm a proud Maxwell graduate, and it is one of the reasons I chose Syracuse for my PhD is because of the devotion to public policy and to public service. I mean, those are marketing dollars. They just spent very well on, on that statement. So I'm sure the Dean appreciates that. You've worked hard to increase diversity and inclusion in the Federal Reserve System and the broader field of economics. Why is that an important thing to do? So the, the way to think about it, we just talked about public policy. This is the way I think about it, and I think it's, it's true. I think it's intuitively true for people. Public policy reflects the people who make it. And if we think of economists as being important inputs to that process, and the inputs are all of one type, then we actually get worse policy. So by definition, we have to have a diverse set of opinions, a diverse set of lenses, experiences. And and I want to broaden people's sense of what diversity means. It's not simply about you know, race and ethnicity and gender, those are very important. And historically, we haven't had that kind of diversity and representation. But it also is about socioeconomic class, where you grew up. Is you, Did you come from a rural or an urban area? What was your life experience? And so I think of all of those people as being very important. The other thing is, it's not just about having them around the table. It's about listening and wanting to hear what they say, having voice. And so voice and representation are critical to making the best policy. And that's what sort of the the mantra you have to swear to when you go to the Maxwell School or any other public institution and public policy is we serve the people in our in our country, in our nation, in our in our world. And to do that we have to have a full array of voices. And that's why I'm dedicated to it. It goes way beyond fairness, although fairness is important. It really is about optimal policy making in a world and a time that needs optimal policy. So in terms of optimal policy, diversity, equity, inclusion have been, uh, I'll say, buzzwords you know, on the Hill, on Wall Street, corporate America for the last couple of years. When do we get past that where they're not buzzwords, it's just part of everyday life where it is just what it is? You know, I live in Connecticut, about 40 miles outside New York City. And it's a somewhat of an affluent um, county, but, you know, the minorities here are the majority. And so when, do, when does it just become commonplace in terms of just a natural conversation where it's not even thought about or earmarked? Well, that's a great question. And, you know, one of the things that we, that I'm sort of in the last couple of years have been thinking about a lot is I go all the way back to uh, when I was in sixth grade, my best friend in sixth grade, who's still a friend of mine, is African-American. She's the only, they're the only African-American family in my area, in my neighborhood, in my school. And I remember in sixth grade, us talking about, well, it won't be always like this, right? It'll be much different. And when the pandemic hit and we had all the violence and the upheaval around this, she and I talked and she said, it's not different. And so he, When will it be different? When we demand that it is different. It won't happen without our intention. It won't happen without us sort of laying down arms, if you will, and just saying really what binds us together as humans is so much more important than what labels us as different. And if we just go to this idea that we make better policy, we are a better functioning economy, we have more cohesive communities that have greater social capital and social binds when we just 
treat each other as the same and as humans, as opposed to look for reasons why we're we're different and not alike. And I think that's the missing output in our country. It's the missing way we we move forward and we rebuild from the pandemic. But it will absolutely take us doubling down. And at some point, it's going to take us simply demanding that this becomes part of our ethos, as opposed to being willing to either let it become these somewhat tribal wars among people, or more importantly, just think it's not, we're not part of the problem because we're not actively putting barriers up with people. We need to be part of the solution. And the solution is, you know, equality for all. we, We actually, the Pledge of Allegiance is a document that we could all go back to and just say, what if we lived up to each and every sentence in that pledge? That's what I hope for, but it's also what I'm working towards. You couldn't have said it more perfectly, Doctor. I mean, that was just no surprise, but brilliant. And and to your point, it is time we demand it. Um, And my hope is, you know, as someone who's at ground zero 9-11, we saw those terrorist attacks that they unify us as a country. And it's something we haven't Mm -hmm. seen since then. And to your earlier point, you know, there's a lot of violence early on during the pandemic on, on several different fronts. We had George Floyd, obviously, at the very beginning. And it's, I'm hoping that once we get through this pandemic, it's time for us to unify as a country again, because I don't know if it's ever been this divisive, certainly not in my lifetime. Not mine either. And But think of how much stronger we would be, Chris. I mean, that's the thing. We would give our children and our children's children a brighter future, one filled with hope and prosperity, but we have to come together. We don't have... We can't afford not to at this point. America is supposed to be that shining light on a hill, as a former president said, and I think that light might be getting a little bit dimmer in recent days. So are there forces that have held women back in the field of economics? And if so, what are they? Sure. And I, and I think, you know, I'd like to broaden that, if I may. Uh, definitely, there have been forces that have historically held women and other groups back in economics and in other professions. And, and, I, and I think We've been doing a, a good, decent job of trying to pull down the the barriers or loosen the chains, if you will. But I will offer that that's far from enough because the most insidious problem is that economics isn't very inviting. It's not that they there's chains on the door that keep you out. It's that the doors are locked and they seem dark inside and you have to go through these big hurdles to even get in the profession and nobody seems to want you. And the thing that makes people want to aspire to do great things is having an invitation to do great things. I mean, there are some of us and that reach that escape velocity and just have this drive that pushes us forward no matter what, but why does it have to be so hard? You know, the thing I want for people is that they see that I'm opening the doors and welcoming them in. I want to know where they think differently, what they want. I, I once referenced this and I think it's still an apt, um, analogy or metaphor, whatever the right one is, some English major listening will tell me, but that, you know, you've been to people's homes where they invite you in and then everything's draped in plastic and you have to go through a million things because they would say, well, we're, we'd like you to do these things so that we're comfortable having you in our home. Well, that's the economics profession. What I'd like us to be is the home we all want to go to where people invite you in and they welcome you there. And if you sit on the wrong chair or something, they're like, oh, well, maybe we should be sitting on that chair. You know, they, they invite your difference because your difference makes them their lives richer. And I, I think that's where economics and a lot of other professions, financial services, for instance, the broader financial services, we need to be more inviting because we need to recognize that we need people's views in order to make good policy, in order to make good decisions. 
Along that line, a senior level financial services industry executive said a big hurdle she faced early in her career was that she was often too afraid to say, yes, I can do that. And she deferred to a male counterpart instead. Is that still a problem today? And if so, what should we do to foster in young women the sense of confidence and ability that they can bring to the table? It is absolutely a pervasive problem, not only among women, but above, you know, I'm a first gen college graduate. First gens have this, you know, it's broadly characterized as an imposter syndrome that you you worry so much about not whether you should even be there, that you're not really going to jump over and and say, uh, oh, I can do that. But I. I, I think the imposter syndrome, and I certainly suffered from it myself, is is apt. But I'd like to change the lens a little bit because the imposter syndrome makes it feel like something that I should fix or each individual should fix him or herself. But what wouldn't it be great if we also recognize that if we make people feel like imposters or if we don't invite them in or if they can't get over that hurdle, then maybe we're leaving talent on the table. And maybe we're just not optimizing, going back to optimal, we're not optimizing what we could have. So I think one thing we could all do, and it doesn't matter what role you have, but it's something you can all do is do something that was done for me. So I'm 15, I drop out of high school, I have no idea that I'm going to do anything other than just you know, basically get the jobs I can get. And a woman named Betsy Bain, who was my mentor back then, she saw something in me I couldn't see in myself. And she just said, hey, I think you can do this. I think you can do that. So she pulled me over those lines, right? When I couldn't push myself over, she was pulling me over. And then, of course, I gained some self-sustainability and I moved on. So each and every one of us can look around and say, where do I see someone having potential? Maybe they don't want that life course. That's fine. But maybe they don't even know they could have that life path. And that's a miss. So that's something we can all do. Going back to that intentional, we can all uh, look around our own world and text or call or encourage or see in person or Zoom and just help people feel comfortable taking shots at things that they never dreamed were possible. You talked about your mentor and let's stick with mentorship for, for a moment there. Mentorship has been a barrier between women and advancement. Women who receive career advancement advice from higher-ups are more likely to be promoted, but entry-level women don't receive as much support and encouragement as their male counterparts do. Are we simply going to have to wait until more women are in senior senior leadership positions? Or like you said, do we take the initiative and reach out and and email, phone call, text, and and see what we can do to to pull them as opposed to them pushing themselves? I think we reach out. We I mean, we don't have a choice, really. We have to reach out. If we wait for more women to get in there, we're in this vicious circle of who's going. We'll get a few women who get escape velocity. They get in there. They do as much as they can, but they can't do everything. And then we end up with not enough throughput. And this is true whether you're talking about gender, race, ethnicity, any any first gens, whatever you pick. So one thing that I think is perhaps, again, a myth is that it takes a woman to mentor a woman. My best mentor, some of them have been men and continue to be because what a mentor is isn't about your gender or your race or your ethnicity it's about someone who says i notice you i'm willing to give you a hand i'm willing to see the world through my lens and share that with you and that just opens your possibility set so if you're a, a man out there you know what women can you mentor if you're a, a person of um, if you're white like I am what person of color can you mentor who can you look to that's outside of your the group that looks just like you to reach out and say hey can I help you and again it's not about 
dictating what a path is for someone. It's about allowing them to see other opportunities that their own experiences and, and life experiences might not have shown them. And and I think that's the biggest service we can do. And so that's, you know, there's a, a term that we, people use called sponsorship now, and, and it's different than mentorship. And sponsorship is advocacy. Are you advocating for someone? Do you see someone's talent? Are you saying, look, why don't we give her a try? Why don't we look at that? Because if they don't raise their hands, it doesn't mean they're not interested. It might just mean they're afraid. They don't know the path. They actually don't know the rules of engagement. I mean, you know yourself from your own experiences, knowing the rules of engagement is critical to feeling comfortable enough to raise your hand. And so just teaching the rules of engagement. Here's how you engage. If you want a job, go for it. It's okay to say I can do that based on never having done it before. It's totally okay to say, here's some skills that I have that I know will transfer in to that kind of opportunity, but I haven't, do I have that experience? No, but I know I can do it. Well, that point, taking initiative goes a long way, I think, in, in taking those first couple of steps forward. It's a great point. Let's talk about your current position. For those in our audience who may have forgotten their government or civics classes, what does the Federal Reserve do and what role do the 12 Federal Reserve banks around the country serve? Sure. It's a great question, and I appreciate it. So in simple terms, the Federal Reserve System is responsible for three core functions for our nation. The first function is the payment system. It's the one that we often don't remember the Fed does, but it's one of our critical functions. We're responsible for ensuring that we have a safe and sound payment system. So when you think of the cash in your wallet and your ability to go and get cash when you need it, whether it's because of you need it for convenience or we're in a disaster or a snowstorm or something and you need cash because it's the easiest way to, to buy things, all of those things are the responsibility of the Federal Reserve System. The second responsibility we have is for a safe and sound financial system. And we work with other regulators, of course, and there's a laundry list of acronyms about these other regulators, but we're all doing the same thing, ensuring that the financial system, the banking system has the money they say they'll have when you go in and look for it, and that they're lending with fairness and you're putting your deposits in, you can feel that they're available to you. All of those pieces, that safety and soundness of the financial system is also the Federal Reserve's job. And then the third job is monetary policy, and that's the job of of, as Congress has given to us, assuring that we have a sustainable growth rate with achieving full employment and price stability. So that means just broadly and simply, every person who wants a job can have one, and your dollar has the same value today that it had yesterday. And those are the things that we're responsible for. The reason there are 12 and a board of governors, which is uh, in D.C., is because our the founding fathers, if you will, or the founding people of, of this group that, that put this together said, it's really important that we don't become D.C. located, right, that we have regional diversity. Now, if you look at a map, you're going to ask, why does the 12th district have nine states and, you know, a large portion of the U.S. population? Well, it's because in 1913, the West didn't have many people living in it, and so this was about equal in terms of uh, – population, but now it's not, of course. And so I have a, a huge district with a, it's basically a microcosm of the U.S. population. We have everything from from rural to urban to, uh, you know, Hawaii and Alaska, resource heavy, IT heavy. And it's, it's really a wonderful district I work in. But the wonderful part about the system, the Federal Reserve System, is we're apolitical, we're independent, we are not doing things from one party or another, and we are diverse geographically um, from where, you know, who knew that a high school dropout uh, who went on to get a PhD 
and a gay female could be leading a reserve bank. That's a fantastic thing. And if you look across our group, we, we're not completely where we want to be, but we have a lot of diversity. And I think that's a, a testament to the strength of the Federal Reserve System. I mean, you are the American dream, the way you just phrased what your, your journey has been like. And so thank you for sharing that. And a random question, does the Federal Reserve System have anything similar to Congress where based on population shifts, you, you redistrict? No, we don't. It was set up in 1913 and uh, there hasn't, there've been some refinements of our mandated goals and what we're responsible for as we've evolved as a, as a banking system in the U.S. and also as, as we've evolved as, a, as a, an economy. But we haven't done any of the changes in this and it's working uh, very well, I would say, that if you look back in history, the Fed has by and large uh, risen to the occasions of what the economy demands of us. And I think the, the critical feature of that is the independence. As someone who was working on Wall Street during the financial crisis, certainly rose the occasion. Um, hopefully, don't, we don't see that again. Hopefully, yes. I mentioned in the open that your research is focused on labor market dynamics and the aggregate and distributional impacts of monetary and fiscal policy. Those are obviously some really big concepts. What's the goal of your research in those areas and how those forces affect the lives of the people in our audience? You know, I started doing this research when I started uh, thinking about economics because I was sitting in a class at University of Missouri, Kansas City, and a professor said that something that struck with me for the rest of my career, and I continue to say, is that economics is not about math. It's not about equations. It's not even about micro and macro. It's about people. And being an economist means studying the lives of people. And if you simply study the average person, you'll know no one. You'll understand no one. And so my research, if you look at it, is all about the distribution of people, which is a statistical way to say every American. We have a banner as you walk into our Fed that says, our work touches every American and countless global citizens. So the way I think about my research is I want to know whether the monetary policy I'm taking, the payment system we're supporting, uh, the risk that we face as a nation, be them climate risk or other, or the pandemic risk, how is it affecting the individuals in our economy? And how do I go back and make sure that we're not satisfied by just saying, well, the average unemployment rate is fine, so we must be good because beyond beneath those averages are the lives of every individual. So I am very micro, I'm a microeconomist by training and I'm living in a macro world. And I think that has really served me because ultimately I think about the woman at Walgreens who can't afford her groceries anymore because she inflation's too high. And I think about the man standing outside of Walgreens who can't get a job because he can't afford the COVID test that it requires to get employment. So these are things about people that then translate into the aggregate economy. And sticking with the, the woman at Walgreens, we've heard a lot about the potential impact of inflation, supply chain problems and COVID in recent months. Obviously COVID is still that, that random wild card that's out there, but how do you foresee inflation and supply chain problems affecting our lives in 2022? And what should everyday person do to try to minimize those effects on their families and businesses? Well, let me start by saying this, that as goes COVID, so goes the economy. And I think we can't underline that enough. So the, the basic thing that every American can do is get vaccinated, get boosted, wear a mask, 
and be hopeful. <laughs> Those four things you can really, we can participate. Now, what does it mean though, when you go to the grocery store and the groceries are too expensive relative to where you felt you had them last month? And the important thing I can do here is say, we recognize that at the Federal Reserve. And in fact, in our last meeting, uh, Chair Powell came out and said, you know, our, you saw our we publish our policy expectations. And those are really for raising the interest rate in 2022 because we net we recognize that policy needs to adjust to ensure that we can keep inflation at bay, make sure that people can go to the grocery each month and, and feel like they're not paying more and more for their basket of, of goods and, and services that they purchase. And recognize also that we have still many, many people who sit on the sidelines idle not working because COVID has disrupted their lives. So for an economist and for a policymaker, this really means that you have to have two fields of vision simultaneously. I have to look at the economy we face in 2022 and say, what policy adjustments do I need to make or, or vote for or, or, rec or influence to get us where we need to be? And how do I also recognize that we may need to continue supporting our economy past 2022, past 2023 in some capacity, because there are all those sidelined Americans that are going to be wanting to come back to work once we've got this COVID uh, pandemic behind us. So for the average American, though, I will say the same thing, um, you know, get vaccinated, get boosted, mask up, let's get this thing behind us. Because when we kill off COVID, or at least get it to the point where it's not in interrupting our lives, the economy is there. The economy we love and know is right there waiting to come out. And it's just a matter of getting uh, the health in the situation that allows it to do so. Mary, we have just a few minutes left. You certainly overcame much adversity and many hurdles in your career to achieve remarkable success. What parting advice do you have for audience, especially young women, to persevere through adversity and achieve their goals? You know, I, I, I was thinking about this uh, a lot because the new year, so my birthday is December 24th, and then I have a new year coming. So I always have this sort of looking over things. And, you know, and I've answered the question you just posed different times, I'm sure, in different parts of my life. But here's how I feel about it right now is when I look back on my life, what I realize is there are always barriers for each and every person listening. There are barriers, there are hurdles, there are adversity. And why you keep pushing forward is because we have one life, really. And if we let things push us aside, then we end up getting to the end and say, well, why did I let that go? And But if you just push through, you live the life you want to live, I can tell you that I am completely happy. Did, did I never get disappointed? No. Was it hard at times? Yes. Did people kind of try to push me away? Absolutely. But in the end, I just lived the life I wanted. Would this be a life other people would choose? Probably not, but it's the life I chose. It's the life I love. And I can tell each and every young woman, young person, or a person my age, if you live the life you want and you're not bridled by what society expects of you, but you're only pushed by your own North Star of contributing and being the person you know you can be, then you'll end up being successful, but more importantly, being happy. Be your own North Star. I love that. And for those who may not know where the North Star is, I highly encourage them to look up the Athenian Oath uh, <laughs> and take a quick read of that. Uh, Dr. Mary Daly, President of the Federal Reserve Bank of San Francisco, thank you for your efforts to ensure that our economy reigns strong, stable, and a beacon of prosperity. And thank you for sharing your insights with us today. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. And go orange. Go orange. We'll be back after this short break.
Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. The White House Doctor Makes House Calls. Listen every week for House Calls with Dr. Connie Mariano. Dr. Connie has served as the White House physician under three U.S. presidents. Now she joins the Voice America Empowerment Channel to help you enrich yourself physically, emotionally, and spiritually. Our guests will include professionals from a variety of fields who will bring you tips that you can apply to your own life. Listen for House Calls with Dr. Connie every Thursday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. listening to Next Steps Forward. To reach Chris Meek or his guest on the show today, please call in to 1-888-346-9141. That's 1-888-346-9141. Or send an email to chris at nextstepsforward.com. Now, back to this week's show. And we're back with our next guest, Beth Shaw, who is an author visionary, and entrepreneur, and founder and president of YogaFit. Beth, welcome to Next Steps Forward. Thanks, Chris. Thanks for having me. No, thanks for your time today. So first, Beth, would you share a little bit about yourself, including how you became interested in yoga, and introduce our audience to YogaFit? Uh, well, YogaFit is the largest yoga school in the world, and we teach people how to empower their health by taking charge of it using yoga and other mind-body tools, both physically and mentally. I got started with yoga myself by teaching myself guided meditation and imagery at age six because I suffered from horrible migraine headaches. And what gave you the courage to become your own boss and start YogaFit? I saw a need in the marketplace, Chris. It was the mid-90s and yoga was gaining in popularity. However, there weren't instructors to support the growth. And I also noticed by taking so many classes that most yoga styles weren't keeping people safe and effective. So I created a style called Yoga Fit that is both safe, effective, and very user-friendly so that anyone, any body type, can experience the benefits of yoga. And how did you have the expansion go across, you know, make it international like that from an idea for yourself and just really knock it out of the park? Well, my background is in advertising, marketing, and magazines. So I was actually doing advertising sales as a job while I was starting Yoga Fit, the school. And I wrote an ad, uh, an article for a magazine on how to improve your profit center as a health club in a fitness trade magazine. They gave me a half size ad in exchange for the article that I wrote. And uh, we got 250 responses off of that article, which led to our first Yoga Fit teacher training in September of 1997 in Fargo, North Dakota. And since starting Yoga Fit, over 100,000 people have par- participated in Yoga Fit classes. Your Instagram and Facebook accounts have close to 90,000 followers collectively. 
What do the numbers say about Yoga Fit and its impact on society? Well, we've reached a lot of people. We've been as a school since, uh, you know, since 1997. So we've trained really thousands of people worldwide who then go out and teach our style to other people. So we've got a huge global reach and we're only growing. And I think that people need yoga and meditation and mind-body tools now more than ever because we're suffering worldwide from a huge mental health crisis. And where can people find you on social media? Uh, they can find me on Instagram, Beth Shaw Mind Body. They can find Yoga Fit on Instagram and Facebook. We're on Twitter. They can find me on LinkedIn, Beth Shaw Yoga. So we're, we're all over the place. America has an obesity and mental health problem. How can people use yoga to maintain whole mind, body, and health wellness? Personally, Chris, I think that yoga is one of the best tools to combat obesity because it gives people the gift of their bodies back. And they once get aware of their bodies through practicing yoga and doing the poses, they're less likely to eat too much, drink too much, and you know, not take care of their bodies. So with body awareness comes a certain level of responsibility and the desire to take care of the body that you're in because it's got to last you your entire life. You mentioned obesity and eating too much, drinking too much. You mentioned that people don't get obese by accident. How are addictive, how are addictive tendencies influencing the obesity problem in America? Well, the, you know, as humans, we're all addictive. And I think that for many people, a food addiction is a lot more acceptable socially than uh, drugs or alcohol. And we can get addicted to fast food. We can get addicted to processed carbohydrates. Sugar is one of the most addictive substances on the planet. So people are just, you know, they're, they're feeding their addiction. And quite frankly, if you're obese, it means that you're taking in far too many calories for your expenditure. So, you know, you can look at obesity as, as, as food hoarding. You can look at obesity as addiction. You can look at obesity as not being aware of your body because you don't just get obese by accident. You don't just wake up one day and you're 50 or 100 pounds overweight. It's a gradual process. And, you know, for a lot of us, so when we put on five pounds, we immediately take steps to knock it off. But it, it takes discipline, it takes willpower, and it takes holding yourself accountable and responsible for taking care of your own health, because quite frankly, nobody else is going to do it for you. You just mentioned that food addiction and obesity are viewed as more socially acceptable than, than drugs and alcohol. You know, we've all been binge watching Ted Lasso and other stuff on Netflix the last couple of years. Have we seen an uptick or an increase in food addiction and obesity throughout the pandemic? Oh, most definitely. In fact, on my uh, radio show that starts tomorrow, Make America Healthy, we're going to have a guest, Dr. Pam Peek. And I was chatting with her last week, and she said that people who were just overweight pre-pandemic now have reached obesity status. And the, I think the average weight gain during COVID for someone who was overweight is 29 pounds, which is pretty staggering on top of the additional weight that they were carrying previously. 29 pounds? Yeah. That's incredible. Yeah, it is. It is. It's amazing. And obviously during the pandemic, gyms closed across the country. Are we seeing that number come down? I know it's still a little bit early, but at all with gyms slowly reopening or is it just going to take longer because 29 pounds is a a lot? You know, 29 pounds is a lot. 50 pounds is a lot. Um, it, It 
takes a while to lose weight. Um, and you can really out eat any exercise program. I have that in my book, Yoga Lean, and it's true. So unless people start to reduce their portions down, move their bodies, and make sure that their output of, of energy is more than what calories they're consuming, I believe that the obesity crisis is, is one of the downfalls of our country. Yeah, no question. You know, you see children nowadays, and especially during the pandemic when there was homeschooling early on, just doing more and more online, being on tablets and smartphones, as opposed to being outside and climbing trees and getting their hands dirty. So uh, great work you're doing and appreciate you sharing the word. So how important is it for people to be proactive and use yoga techniques to maintain their physical and mental well-being? Well, I think it's crucial. I really do. First of all, even if people are doing other exercise programs, yoga is very effective in reducing injuries. Um, it's important to balance the body and get rid of uh, muscular imbalances, tightness. Even people who are sitting all day long, you know, they need to stretch their low back, their hamstrings. Then you see a lot of knee problems as a result of tight hips and hamstrings. So it's crucial. And also mind-body tools like meditation really help people clear their mind as opposed to turning to any exterior substance, whether it's food or alcohol, to calm their minds. Everybody should be trying to practice meditation at least once a day. Well, thankfully, my, uh, my Apple Watch reminds me at least once a day to take a deep breath and you know, be calm for a minute. So uh, that's when I find the time to stand up and stretch the legs because like you said, we're all glued to our monitors and you know, just sitting for much longer than we're used to previous to the pandemic. And to what extent can yoga heal the mind and body and what are its limitations? Well, at Yoga Fit, we teach yoga that's applicable to any different body type, whether you're bound to a chair or whether you know, you're know you older or younger, uh, we have the practice meet you and we make the poses fit your body. So Again, while we're practicing yoga, we gain body awareness, we gain mental clarity, we can do more active yoga, and it becomes cardiovascular in nature. We're working on our strength, our balance, our flexibility simultaneously. And the good news, Chris, is you don't need equipment to do this. You can do it anywhere. Uh, so even if you're, you know, you have a small home or, you know, wherever you are, you can really practice yoga. The Bhagavad Gita says... And quote, yoga allows us to differentiate the field from the knower of the field. How does yoga help people to become mindful in addressing trauma? Well, I wrote a whole book on that. It's called Healing Trauma with Yoga. And coincidentally, it just came out before the pandemic. When we practice yoga, we help improve our brain's function. Many times people who are traumatized have limited prefrontal cortex functioning and they're in fight or flight all the time. That means that you're in your sympathetic nervous system, your cortisol levels are high, uh, you're, you know, you're very hypervigilant, and the process of yoga helps us relax, lower our heart rate. It's great for high blood pressure. It's great for regulated insulin levels. It's great for activating all the muscles in the body and also creating a sense of oneness where you know we are all I believe, uh, spiritual beings in, in human bodies. So in many respects that, that we are one energetically and yoga really helps us get a sense of that. And I understand that yoga has been and is currently being used to treat post-traumatic stress. Do you have experience in that area or can you explain how yoga would help with PTS? 
Yeah, we have a whole program at YogaFit. It's called YogaFit Warriors. Uh, for over a decade, we've been working with military veterans and first responders. And there are actually certain sequences that we have that rid trauma from the body without the participant even having to talk about what that trauma is. And, you know, making people feel safe in their bodies, again, especially if they've had trauma, is hugely important. And also allowing people to get comfortable with their minds and calm in their minds is also gives people a safe place to go to and a safe place to return to. In the beginning of the show, you talked about the global footprint that YogaFit has. Recently, you've led yoga training in Saudi Arabia, Israel, Japan, and many other international locations. Do people in different nations and cultures view yoga and its physical and mental health benefits differently than we do here in the U.S.? Um, from my experience, Chris, the results are always the same. Even if people can't understand a word that I'm saying, and the translator's out of the room, we have many people at the end of class crying and a Having taught a lot in Saudi Arabia, being able to go back year after year and see the positive changes in the women that I instructed, I can say that it gave them increased confidence, more personal power, more self-awareness, and really transformation. So that's been very beautiful to see internationally that the message of yoga is truly universal. How does that make you feel? It's got to be terrific when you go back, like you said, a year or two later and you see these women uh, and just see their, their physical and their mental change, like it's going to make you feel great as a, as a human being. It does. I mean, my number one job on this planet is to be a messenger of health and wellness. And the more people that we can touch at Yoga Fit, uh, you know, I, I believe that really the only reason we're here as humans is to give back and make a positive difference. So, you know, I'm just fulfilling my dharma. Love that. I'll have to start using that. Thank you. You've been featured in numerous fitness business and consumer publications, including Self, Yoga Journal, Huffington Post, New York Times, and more. How has Yoga Fit's growth compared to your wildest dreams? Uh, well, my wildest dreams are that we continue to grow and uh, affect more international change. But it, it, it's been a wonderful ride to be in a business that holds me accountable for my own physical and mental health, and also the ability to continue to go out and learn and share that learning with others. It's, it's a very beautiful uh, space to be in. And what's next for your expansion? Uh, next for our expansion is uh, working more internationally as uh, things open back up again. Next in our expansion is, of course, you know, my new radio show, Make America Healthy. I'm very excited about that. It'll be on Voice America every Wednesday at 4 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. And I'm working on a book, uh, Yoga and Anti-Aging. So you talked about your show here on Voice America, Make America Healthy. Can you give us a little sneak peek and tell us where people can find it? You know, which channel at Voice America? It's on the Empowerment Channel, and it's uh, a show all about health and really empowering people to take charge of their health physically and mentally. We'll have guests on uh, who are doctors, We'll have best-selling authors on, uh, people who own supplement companies that you know I can know and, and vouch for. We'll have guests from the field of biohacking to discuss all the new technology that puts people in meditative states without them having to meditate. Uh, we've got guests coming on for clean beauty, uh, organic products. So just, you know, I hope to give people meaningful tips and tricks that they can implement in their own lives to feel better in the bodies that they're in. 
really looking forward to that. And, you know, given the uh, pandemic 3.0 or wherever we are at this point, uh, very timely. And I think a lot, a lot of great will come out of that to share with your audience. So good luck with the new program. Thank you, Chris. Beth, you've written several books and in each book you include challenges you faced. Yes. Tell us about some of the challenges you faced and how you overcame them and what our listeners can take away to overcome their own challenges. Well, I, you know, I have faced a lot of different challenges in my life. Uh, throughout the course of my life, I've struggled with depression and uh, PMS. I've also had times in my life where I was 30 pounds heavier than I am now. I've had times in my life where I struggled with eating disorders. I have childhood trauma, which I wrote all about in my book, Healing Trauma with Yoga. So I'm no stranger to challenge. And again, I believe that challenges can be opportunities for us to learn, to grow, to heal, and of course, to share that with other people to help them on their own healing journeys. You think by now I forgot the mute button, three years into a pandemic here. So early in the show, you were talking about obesity, and now you're talking about eating disorders. Have we seen a spike in that through the pandemic? You know, as people do more binge watching and binge eating, is it just something that's com- coming through society right now? You know, obviously, young women and young men see things on TV where they're supposed to look like, you know, Barbie or Ken. And if they're not, then they're doing something wrong. What advice do you have for folks out there with eating disorders? Well, you know, eating disorders are very challenging. And depending upon the se- severity, you know, a lot of times people will have to seek medical help. And then other times, it's just a matter of what many people did for dry January that I did too. And it's just make the decision, okay, I'm not having any alcohol for a month. And then to substitute uh, those times when you're eating or things that might trigger you with other activities, perhaps it's taking some sports lessons or doing some workout or going to the gym at night. Um, We're bombarded with food messages and not healthy food when we're watching television. You know, every television commercial is for some fast food company that was, by the way, deemed an essential business during the pandemic that the gyms were not, um, but that's a whole nother conversation. So there's, there's a lot of triggers out there. And again, we're bombarded with messages uh, that are not helping our physical or mental health. So whether it's uh, fast forwarding through the commercials or uh, not doing things that are going to trigger you or just making a decision and then making that decision every next day that you're just going to do what's best for your body. Your body will thank you. You know, our bodies don't want to be obese. They don't want to sit for nine hours a day. They, they are made for movement. We're still in the same bodies that, you know, we were in 5,000 years ago. And th- those bodies were a lot more active at that time. So just move your body and uh, don't eat processed food. And I know that sounds really easy and it's very difficult for people. Um, but I'm going to be putting people into our yoga lean transformation groups who are interested uh, when I start my radio show. And, um, you know, it takes work to be healthy, but it also takes a lot of work to not be healthy because if you look at anybody who's obese, like that's a lot of work. That's like a full-time job maintaining that type of weight. So it's just a matter of switching out habits that don't work for you to switch it into habits that do work for your greater good. We talked about your book that came out right before the pandemic. I always like to ask our authors, what's next in the, uh, the book audience? Um, 
in terms of. I'm, I'm sorry. Do you have any books that you're working on that yeah, you're writing? I, I'm working on a book right now, uh, Yoga for Anti-Aging. And um, that book will really go into how yoga can be a very powerful tool to maintain uh, a youthful body, a youthful mind, a youthful spirit, an open mind. And um, very excited about that book. Dr. Nick Paracone has written the foreword for it. And any ETA where listeners can expect it out there? Probably towards the end of the year. That's no uh, small undertaking writing a book. I don't know how you find all the time between that, your international business, hopping on airplanes to Saudi Arabia. How do you, how do you fit it all into your day? Well, I, um, I, like to, I like to work. That's the good news. I'm also very fast. Uh, and, uh, you know, I'm not doing as much travel these days like most people. So that, that frees up a lot more time. Beth Shaw has been our guest today. Her books, Yoga Fit, Yoga Lean, Healing Trauma with Yoga, and The Yoga Fit Athlete are available on Amazon.com, Barnes & Noble, Audible.com, and other booksellers. Be sure to pick up a copy for you and your friends. And for more information on Beth, you can visit her website, yogafit.com. That's Y-O-G-A-F-I-T.com. Beth, any parting words for our listeners? Uh, just remember, your health is your most valuable asset always. So anything you can do to improve your health on any level is a worthwhile investment. Uh, you can also, if you want to reach out to me personally, you can either direct message me off of Instagram, Beth Shaw Mind Body, or you can reach me through my personal website, BethShaw.com. And one last time, where can we find your new show? My new show is on Voice America Radio, Wednesdays at 4 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. It starts tomorrow, 2-2-22. Good luck with the show. Thank you, Chris. Beth, thanks so much for your time. It's great having you. Thank you. Have a great day. You too. And thanks to our wonderful audience for tuning in to Next Steps Forward. I'm Chris Meek. For more details about upcoming shows and guests, please follow me on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash Chris Meek public figure and on Twitter at Chris Meek underscore USA. We'll be back next Tuesday, same time, same place with our leader from the world of business, politics, public policy, sports, or entertainment. Until then, stay safe and keep taking your next steps forward. for tuning in to Next Steps Forward. Be sure to join Chris Meek for another great show next Tuesday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time and 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. This week, make things happen in your life.